Hi everyone and welcome to eTalmud 2.0. Today we're going to be learning Moed Katan 13a, Yod Gimel Amud Aleph, but we're going to start from the very bottom, second to last line on Yod Beis Amud Beis on 12b, um, and we will go from there. So we were, we're going to start from those two dots, the colon that says Veshole Pishtano Mina Mishra. We're quoting from the Mishnah that says you can lift your flax up from this pool um, and then the more important part that we're going to be analyzing is that the Mishnah says that in all these cases that you're allowed to do these things, if you deliberately scheduled them to be done for Chol HaMoed, then you, are not allowed, you will not be allowed to benefit from the fruits of the labor. So now the Gemara is going to ask, What happens if you did deliberately schedule your work for Chol HaMoed and you did it? And then as soon as you did it, you died. What's the law whether whether we fine um, or penalize this person's children? In other words, let's say you did something forbidden labor and there was benefit to your labor. And for you, if you would have deliberately scheduled it for a Chol HaMoed, you would not be allowed to benefit from that, right? So let's say you made a cake, you wouldn't be allowed to eat that cake. So the question is, do we also penalize your children who inherit your stuff? Are they also not allowed to eat that cake? So the Gemara is going to say as follows. Imtim um, even if you're going to say, and now we're going to 13a, Yogimom um, Aleph, Saram Ozen Bechor, that in the case where you nicked the air of a firstborn animal um, so basically your firstborn animal um, you need to give to a Kohen right who then brings it as a sacrifice in the basement dish in the temple um, and then the Kohen gets a bunch of it and the rest is bur- bur- is is, is um, burned on the altar now if it is blemished if it has a blemish this firstborn animal then it cannot be brought as a sacrifice but um, it become rather it becomes completely the full property of the Kohen. Um, now, so obviously a Kohen prefers a blemished animal than an unblemished animal because then he gets more of it. But here's a Kohen is not allowed to purposely make a blemish in a um, in a firstborn animal. That's a biblical prohibition. And if he did, if he did do that, then we would not allow him to benefit from the from the animal. So the question is, is what happens if he did? The Kohen put a blemish in the animal, which would then allow him to eat, take the whole thing. Um, so the question is, is Kansu, do we, do we, do we find, do we penalize his children? Let's say he died and isn't able to partake of it. Do we penalize his children and also not allow them to partake of it either? So we're saying that even if you're going to say that in the case where you made a nick in the ear of a firstborn animal, um, which is a blemish, and then you die. The rabbis would penalize the surviving children. That would be different because of Mishum Isur Daraisa, because blemishing a firstborn is a biblical prohibition. So we treat it more stringently, and we say that we even penalize the children who inherited the blemished animal. And if you're going to say, that in the case of one who sold his slave to an idolater, and then he died. Now, when you sell your slave to an idolater, you are penalized as well. Um, basically, um, you have to buy back the the slave um, 
for, a, for way more than it's worth, for way more than the worth of the slave. And just by the way, the reason for this is because this type of slave particular, if they were at your place, if they were still your slave, they would need to follow the mitzvot. If they're in a non-Jew house, they don't follow the mitzvot. So by selling them to a non-Jew, you have basically um, forfeited this guy's um, obligations to fulfill the mitzvot, and that's considered something that's negative. So the question is, is what happens if you sold your slave? And now do we penalize the children that inherited your problems? Um, so we're going to say, even if you're going to say, that if you sold your slave to a non-Jew, and then you died, that we do penalize the children, the, the surviving children. That's That's because each day that the slave stays with the idolater um, is another day that he's removed from observing the mitzvahs. So, you know, it would make sense that we'd penalize the children as well in order to be able to get them back, in order to be able to get that slave back to performing mitzvot. But hachamai, but here, what is going to be the rule? Here where you... You did, you deliberately scheduled your work for Cholmoid, you did your work, you made your cake, now you have that cake. Do we say that we penalize the children and don't let them eat it? Or do we say, no, the, pay, the penalty is only on the person who transgressed, not on the children that inherited it. So we answer, Gavra Kanis Rabbanon. So no, so we, we were analyzing. Gavra Kanis Rabbanon was the, Kanas was the penalty on the person. Vahalese, and that man is not here anymore. Odomamamona Kanis Rabbanon, or perhaps it's on the money on the actual thing that the rabbis penalized, that you're not letting, that this money is not allowed to be benefited from. And that money is still here, or the cake is still here. So now, that, so we're not sure what the halacha is going to be. We're not sure what the rule is going to be. Let's see what the Gemara is going to say. So, Reb responded to Reb Yirmiya. We have learned this law in a Mishnah. Um, we learned this law in a Mishnah. If you cleared the thorns of your field during the Shemitah year, or a, a field that, who had its thorns cleared during the Shemitah year. Now, you're not allowed, so during Shemitah, which is the seventh year, um, which is known as the sabbatical year, um, you are not allowed to uproot thorns from one's field. Um, now, what we're talking about here is where the thorns are already detached and you're just removing them from the field. And what this does is it's a violation of a rabbinic law um, but not a biblical law because um, it's, it's, I'm sorry um, yeah it's not it's not considered a violation a severe violation because it's not considered an important agricultural task right because it doesn't improve the ground itself um, so the question is so usually when you do something that is prohibited um, you would penalize the field's owner um, and now, you know, you penalize the field's owner. So now let's see what happened in this case. So again, so you have a field that was cleared of thorns during the Shemitah year. You can still plant in it the year after the Shemitah year. So in other words, you're not penalized because this wasn't considered a significant agricultural task, although it was still prohibited. But if you improved the field through heavy fertilization or you had animals penned up in, in it in order to fertilize it, then you actually made important um, changes to the land itself. It's an important agricultural task. And therefore, you're not allowed to plant in the year after the Shemitah year. That's your penalty. Um, okay, the Amr of Yosef Barchanina says, Naktina, we hold as a tradition 
that Hetiva Umeist, what happens if you did improve the field by that heavily fertilization during the Shemitah year? So he said that if you did and then you died, Bino Zara, your children may plant it the year after the Shemitah year. So Alma, therefore, we see very clearly, Lidide Kansur Abanan, that against the transgressor himself, the rabbis penalized him. Liberate Lokansur Abanan, but not. The rabbis did not penalize the children that inherited it. Hachanami, so so too seemingly here. When it came to that scheduled work, the work that you scheduled for Cholomoy, we would say the same thing. We did a against him, the transgressor, the rabbis would establish a penalty. But for the children, they would not be penalized by the rabbis. Um, says We hold as a tradition as well. The teammate Taharos of Umes, that if you someone contaminated the um, the Tahor food of another and then he died. Um, so basically contaminated the Tahor food, the pure food of somebody's, and then he died, right? So you're not allowed to go and you're not allowed to make impure or defile the pure food of somebody else because that's a loss. Um, if it's truma, then it's not going to be allowed to be eaten anymore. And even if it's not truma, there you are, you cut off a group, a part of the population from eating that food, which of course would then make it less valuable. So what happens if you go and you you defile the pure food of somebody else and then you die? So if you prove, if you defile the pure food of somebody else and you didn't die, then there's a knas, then you're penalized. They actually have to pay for the damage. But it, what happens if um, if you died? Then does your children have to pay for that damage? And by the way, the reason that it's considered a fine and not a monetary damage payment is because there is no physical damage. And it's, you know, so so your usual damages payments have to be able to be um, you know they have to be physical. They have to be um, they have to be concrete. Here you basically transferred its spiritual. You know, you you changed its spiritual makeup. So that's not considered a physical damage, and therefore you don't pay damages. It's rather a fine that the rabbis created. So we say, that if you defiled someone else's pure stuff, your children are not going to be penalized. They do not have to pay for damages. My time. What's the reason that you don't have to pay? No. Um, the reason is, is because, so the reason that the son does not have to pay is because from a biblical standpoint this is unrecognizable damage right it's not physical damage and it's not therefore considered damage so if you do this then um you know you you will be penalized at from the rabbis but but the rabbis only established a penalty against the transgressor himself but not against the children of the transgressor so we see very clearly that when it comes to transgressing rabbinic laws um you do not have to you are the the transgressor himself is penalized but not the children of the transgressor okay um let's continue on continue on in the mishnah you're not allowed to buy homes slaves or animals unless it's for an immediate festival need right a home to live in during the festival a slave to serve you during the festival and animals to be eaten for the festival um or to provide for the needs of the seller who he himself has nothing to eat and therefore needs funds. So you can buy from him in order to get make sure he has funds to provide for himself and his family food for the holiday. Okay, so now the Gemara is going to ask the following question. 
What about if you don't have anything to eat? Mahu, what's the law? Meaning, we said that for the seller's um, sake, you are allowed to buy from him so that he in turn will have, um, will have uh, money to, to buy what he needs for the holiday. Um, but can you also hire a worker? Meaning, we know that you can buy something from a seller if he needs the money. Can you also get a worker who needs the money to do work for you? That's not necessary for Chol Hamoy, but we will provide him with money to help him uh, buy what he needs for the festival. So Amar they said to him, Tanino, we learned this in our Mishnah. When the Mishnah said that you could buy something to provide for the needs of the seller who does not have anything to eat. Now seemingly, the idea of for the needs of the seller who does not have anything to eat, why did we need those extra words of who does not have anything to eat? Um, couldn't we have just said to provide for the needs of the seller? Why do we add, why do we explain who does not have anything to eat? Does it not come to tell us that anybody that doesn't have anything to eat, you can pay for their services, uh, including somebody that you, uh, you know, you can pay them to work on Cholamoid to do something for you that's not for the festival as long as they need that money for the festival. So that's the, that's the Gemara's first idea. So we answer, Amarlei, um, lo. So he said back to Rav Nachman, no, that's not a good proof. Perushe Kamafarish, that latter phrase in the Mishnah that says, um, who does not have anything to eat is coming to explain what the Mishnah means when it says for the needs of the seller that it's talking about a seller who does not have anything to eat for the festival. But it's not coming to be extended to hiring a needy worker on Chol HaMoyed. So now Rava's reply is going to be challenged. asked on this. Um, the halacha is, is that you're not allowed to write loan documents on Chol HaMoyed. But if the lender does not trust the borrower without, um, right, and we assume that the borrower needs this money for the festival. Um, but if he does not trust him and therefore would only lend to him if he they write a document, or or if he does not have anything to eat, um, the, the, the borrower, Hareza Yichtov, the law is, is that he can write the document. Now this phrase of if he does not have anything to eat, what does it come to include, right? We're obviously because um, meaning meaning what is that? We talked about two cases then just now. We talked about the borrower, um, so meaning if you don't trust the borrower, or if the or if he does not have anything to eat. So what are we referring to um, when we say um, he does not have anything to eat? It can't be referring to the borrower. Um, and then saying that he's permitted to write the document only if the borrower is somebody that doesn't have anything to eat, because then you shouldn't have read the word or, right? It shouldn't have been you if you don't trust the borrower, or you know, or you don't have anything, or he doesn't have anything to eat. It should have said if you don't trust the borrower and he doesn't have anything to eat. So rather, this must be a separate teaching. And then if that's the case, who does it refer to? Lavla asuye scharpula does it not come to include as well paying wages for work on cholamoid who's to somebody who doesn't have anything to eat and who then um, you know now by by hiring them they'll have money to pay for food for cholamoid. 
in this scenario, would be referring to the professional scribe who would be writing out the loan document. So seemingly you see that very clearly that as well, you can hire on Chol HaMoed, a needy individual, to do work for you, even if you don't need that work for the holiday, to provide for his own festival needs. Shmamina, indeed, we may learn this from this Mishnah. Okay. Okay. So most of Rav Sheshis, but now we're going to ask about this ruling. Most of Rav Sheshis, Rav Sheshis challenged this ruling um, from a Mishnah that discusses working on Pesach Eve, right? The Eve of Pesach. Let's see. The sages said, Shalosh umanios osin um, The there are three craftsmen that can do their work on Pesach um, until midday, right? Even until midday. And they are as follows, right? So in general, you're not allowed to do any work Erev Pesach in order to make sure that you're, you're, um, you're, you're, preparing, you're all prepared for once Pesach comes in. But we see that there are three craftsmen who can perform work on Pesach Eve at least until midday. Okay, so who are these people? Hachayatin, Vahasaparin, Vahakosin, tailors, barbers, and launderers. Now listen, listen, we gotta pay attention carefully. Hachayatin, the reason the tailors can work on the morning of Erev Pesach is Shekain Hediotofer Kedark B'choshemon, because we know that an unskilled person can sew in his usual manner during Chol HaMoed. And basically what we say is, is that if there's any way of doing something on Chol HaMoed in a permitted way, then you can do it in any way then on Erev Pesach because the work prohibition on Chol HaMoed is more stringent than the work prohibition on, Pesach, on Erev Pesach. So therefore, if there's any way possible to do something on Chol HaMoed, then you can do it in every way, that same thing on Erev Pesach. And what we're saying is, is that although a professional tailor is not allowed to sew on Chol HaMoed, an unprofessional could, someone that's not a professional could, and if someone that's not a professional could do it on Chol HaMoed, then anybody could sew, anybody could do tailor work on Erev Pesach, including your professional tailor. The next two cases, Hasapar and Bakovsin, and the reason that the barbers and the launderers can work on Erev Pesach up until midday is Shekein Habayim Dinasem Vayotzin because we know that those who came back from overseas trips and who go came out of prison um, and did not have an opportunity to go to the barber to launder their clothes before Yom Tiv, they're permitted to cut their hair and launder their clothes on Chol Hamoid. So what we're saying is, is that because there's an instance where you are allowed to launder or cut your hair on Chol HaMoed, then in all scenarios you're allowed to launder and cut your hair on Erev Pesach until midday. So now the Gemara is going to, so that's what we're seeing so far. So now the Gemara is going to ask its question. Now if you think that you are allowed to pay wages for work to one who doesn't have anything to eat, um, on, to eat on Chol HaMoed, that you are allowed to do that, so that would mean then that there's a way on Chol HaMoed to do to accomplish every single type of forbidden labor, um, because that would be the case in the instance where somebody needs some money, and you can give them work for that. Then on Erev Pesach we should say every form of forbidden labor should be permitted on Erev Pesach because there's a way to do it on Chol HaMoed. 
to Haikas Kharpula Shilamayocha because there's a way to do it on Khalamoid for the person, for the worker that you can are allowed to hire that has nothing to eat. And if that's the case, right? And the Mishnah seems to imply the opposite. It seems to imply that no, most tasks are prohibited prohibited on Pesach Eve. Um, which would then seem to tell us then that on Chol HaMoed, if they're all prohibited on, Chol, on Pesach Eve, that would then lead us to understand that on Chol HaMoed, you are prohibited from hiring a worker who needs money for food for Chol HaMoed um, for it to hire them up for a non-festival need. So that's what it would seem to imply. So now we're going to say no. Maskifler of Papa, of Papa challenges as follows. Elamiata. If what you're saying is true, that we see this link, between, that this link exists between Pesach and Chol HaMoed, where if something is permitted in any fashion on Chol HaMoed, then it'll be permitted in, in every fashion on Pesach. Um, El Miata, according to that, Binyan Lishtri, then you should be allowed to build on Erev Pesach. Shekein Kosal HaGohel because in the case of a wall that is leading dangerously into the public domain, we say that so sir, you can demolish them and rebuild it on Chol HaMoed in a usual manner because of the danger it poses to the public. So we see very clearly that you have a scenario where on Chol HaMoy there is a way to do building, and yet we don't say that on Pesach, Erev Pesach, you're allowed to do every form of building. So we see, um, so we see that, that this extension that we're saying, that this connection, um, does not really follow through. We don't. We don't. It's not. It doesn't work that just because something is permitted in some fashion on Chalamoy that you're allowed to do it in any fashion on Erev Pesach. Um, and we have another challenge, a similar type of challenge. Mask of the Ravina. Ravina challenges as well. El Miata. If this were true, that anything permitted in any in some fashion on Chalamoy is permitted in every fashion on Erev Pesach. Lavler Lishri. Then a scribe should be re- permitted to write anything he wants on Pesach Eve. Because we know that on Chol HaMoed, a scribe is allowed to write documents of betrothal, bills of divorce, and receipts. Um, and receipts on, on Chol HaMoed. And if, that's the, and if, if, it, if the logic really follows, then on Erev Pesach, then you should be able to write anything you want. And we know that that's not the case. So obviously, this connection that we're making... Uh, between Chalamoid and Pesach is not a is not a real connection. Is not it's, is we're we're not understanding it correctly. So what what Rav Papa and Ravina basically just showed us is that Rav Shesh's challenge is invalid um, because the connection or the analogy between Chalamoid and Erev Pesach is not absolute. So what is the analogy then? We see that there's some sort of connection between Chalamoid and Erev Pesach. So the question is, is what is the correct way to understand that connection? Ella Amar Avashi, rather Avashi says, Moed Arba'a Sarkaramis. Rav Sheshis, you're trying to compare Chol Moed to the 14th of Nisan, right? Erev Pesach. But there are separate reasons to prohibit work on Chol Moed and on Pesach Eve. Which would mean then that there are separate reasons to permit work on Chol Moed and Pesach Eve. Moed Mishum Terchahu, the reason that you're not allowed to work on Chol Moed is because of exertion. Right, you don't want to ruin the joy of the day through having exerted yourself too much. But in a case of, of, of imminent loss, the rabbis permitted work. Um, and that's not considered unnecessary exertion. Right? So when it comes to food, um, if you lack food, working to obtain money to buy food is not considered an unnecessary exertion. 
So therefore, you're allowed to hire such an individual to work a chalmoy. But our boss, our Bishum the reason on the 14th that you're not allowed to do labor, you're not allowed to do work, that's in order to make sure that you are have time to prepare for the festival. So therefore, um, work that's performed for something that is a festival need, the rabbis permitted it. Work that's performed that's something that's not a festival need, the rabbis did not permit it. Um, so that's really the idea here. So the analogy between Chalmoy and Pesach is not really complete. The only time you can create this analogy is um, the only time that the analogy is valid is if you're doing work that is performed for the needs of the festival, like the three crafts that we said earlier. But other forms of work, even if they are permitted on Chol Hamoid, they may still very well be prohibited on Pesach Eve. So Rav Sheshis' challenge is completely refuted. Okay. New Mishnah. Um, you're not allowed to move items from a house in one courtyard to a house in another courtyard on Cholamoid. And the reason for this is twofold. Number one, because of the exertion involved. It's a big distance. And number two, it will seem to onlookers um, that you are engaging in weekday activity because you're doing this through a public domain. So there's onlookers and they'll think you're doing something weekday activities You're not in that you're, um, which you're going to be allowed to do. But you are allowed to move items um, to a house in one's own courtyard. And we're going to discuss more what this means. You're not allowed to bring vessels from the house of the craftsman. However, if you fear for them that they'll be stolen if you leave them by the craftsman, you can move them to a house in a different courtyard. So all of this we'll need to understand more what exactly we're talking about. Um, so let's uh, let's let's see the Gemara. Okay. Um, so what we're going to first focus on is that second sentence that said that you can move objects. You can't move objects from a house in one courtyard to a house in another courtyard, but it said you could move objects into a house in your own courtyard. And at first, the Gemara is going to understand this to mean that you can even move them from a house in a different courtyard to a house in your own courtyard. So the Gemara is going to ask the obvious question, but you said in the beginning of the Mishnah that you're not allowed to move objects from a house in one courtyard to a house in another at all. So how could the second statement be coming and tell us that you're allowed to as long as you're transferring it to a, your, a house in your, to your house in your own courtyard? Um, why would that make any sort of difference? So Omar Abayi says, Seifa, what that second statement is telling us is Asan It's coming to teach us that you are allowed to move an object from a house to a house that are in the same courtyard, right? In that case, since the distance is not great because it's in the same courtyard and it's done in private because you don't have to go through the public domain because you're only going through a courtyard, then we say it's allowed. Um, let's go a little bit further. You're not allowed to bring vessels from the house of the craftsmen on Rava. Rava, in order to sharpen our wits, he once tested us with the following question. Tanan, we learned in the Mishnah. You're not allowed to bring vessels from the house of the craftsman. Uraminhi, but look at what we have in the Mishnah in Psachim. Uraminhi, or you know, we can contradict this with the following. That you could take vessels to, and you can bring vessels from the house of the craftsman. Even though those vessels are not needed for the festival. So it seems that the Mishnah Psachim teaches that you are allowed to bring vessels from the craftsman's house, which would contradict our Mishnah, would seem to say otherwise. So we answered him. 
Kambar here, the Mishnah Sachim, that's with regard to the laws of the 14th of Nisan, um, Erev Pesach. Kambachol Shemoy, we're here, we're talking about our Mishnah. So on the 14th of Nisan, on Erev Pesach, you are allowed to bring vessels from the house of the craftsman because it has nothing to do with exertion. Exertion's allowed. And a Chalamoid, you are not allowed to do that, and that's our Mishnah. And then we'll wait to read the second answer until next week, but we'll stop here for now. Thank you for taking part in this.